Well, it's day six of the BFI London Film Festival and people, the weather definitely has not improved. But it's been a busy day, seen um seen some films, done a lot of interviews, it's been a lot of running around. Um I'm not going to bring you the United Skates review today because I think I'm going to be sitting down with the director tomorrow. So I'll bring you both of those things tomorrow. But don't worry, you're still going to get some interviews and some reviews today. So sit back and enjoy. It came about, um, I was uh, looking around for a film, a feature to make uh, as my first feature. I'd had a couple of other projects that didn't get off the ground and I was speaking to a friend who's a screenwriter and he told me that he had the idea of two people uh, or more than one person inhabiting the same body that came from an experience he had when he was in high school where he went to his locker and it wouldn't open and his imagination went to this idea of someone taking over his body at night and leaving him to deal with the ramifications of that other life during the day Um, and then he started thinking about what that would be like and how they would coexist and that they would have to have this very strict set of rules to live by that would you know keep them alive but ironically keep them from living to an extent so Mm. that seemed like a really interesting premise to go from so that it started there and then Right, yeah. right. Yeah, it, it's the, I really like the, the concept of the film. Mm. It kind of seemed like something you'd see on Black Mirror. Right, you know? yeah, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. I, 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 you know, it came about before that show really, and maybe it had existed, but, um, you know, your ver- the uh, British version. And then I started watching it and I loved it. Yeah, it's sort of like the... You know the, the the new Twilight Zone, which mm. I've which yeah, I yeah. you know growing up I was a huge fan of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like um, so, how did it like all come together? Did you get um, I, I forget the Engel uh, Engel Ansel uh, Elgort. Yes, yes. yes. Did, did you get him straight away or like you know what? How did um, yeah. you get the castings and everything? And yes, did you get yeah. everyone that you wanted for the roles? Yes, I mean, I, I, I was very lucky with the cast. Um, I um, Ansel got hold of the script and uh, through his agent came to us um, with his interest. And I responded to that by looking at his films and, and of course meeting him and I just fell in love with him and I thought he'd be great for it. Um, I was, my one concern was that he was uh, too young for the part, but then it, it, it turned out that, you know, we, with some minor adjustments in the script, we could make that work for him because he, I thought he was so worth it. And he was, he's amazing. And um, then, um, once we had our lead, um, we also made an offer to Patricia Clarkson 
before the Doctor character, and uh, we were lucky that she accepted, and uh, because I'm a huge fan of hers and know her work very well, mm. and um, had thought of her in, even in the writing of it. And then um, the character played by Suki Waterhouse, that was, uh, we auditioned a lot of actors for that part. And I saw, they sent in tapes, or I met with them in person in New York, and Suki lives here in London. So she um, auditioned by, uh, by sending in tape, and then yeah. also by Skype. And um, we, we, I met several times with her, and then also had her read with Ansel. They had worked together on a previous film and knew each other and had great chemistry already. Like they're very fun together and very have similar senses of humor. So they, that was also um, that was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, how long was the shoot itself? The shoot was twenty-one days. Oh, right. Yeah, it was um, twenty-one days in New York. And uh, you know that was uh, it was tight, but we knew you know we designed the script so that it could be done economically. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah so. There's um, I think it was interesting because I, I, I know you you've um, described it as a sci-fi film, mm. but it's kind of like mm. um, it doesn't have the normal trappings yeah. of a sci-fi film. Yeah, like you would look at it and think it is our current yeah. universe right there's like even a little thing on the next yeah. you, you know yeah. I just think it, like that could possibly yeah. be something that's yeah. here now yeah so like yeah. yeah so what was your kind of thinking uh, around yeah. that like right. knowing you wanted to make a sci-fi film right but, you know was it budget that you didn't do anything mm. else or was it just no I want to have it really pared down yeah I, I wanted it to be um really pared down you know at first when I started developing the concept I didn't really think of it as science fiction I just thought of it as more sort of fantasy or kind of something kind of strange and Kafka-esque but then there was a science around it and he has had a doctor and then we developed the device so um it began to kind of um you know t you know touch on the science fiction genre so and one film in particular that i looked at that i've always liked very much was um, never let me go which is uh have you seen that yes, film yeah that was uh, the book both the book and the movie i love and i loved in that movie how it looks it's actually set slightly in the past in the 90s mm. but it looks like our our everyday yeah. but there's yeah, yeah, this yeah. whole sort of alternate universe feel to what's happening and just the slightest element of they have a kind of a similar device mm. sort of thing. But that's the only sort of electronic or sort of technologically, you know, futuristic thing that, that happens. And I just thought that was great. So I wanted something um, like that that could, so that you would watch it and feel this could be real, that it's not a clearly in the future sort of um fantasy thing but uh, like it just could be happening now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah definitely yeah um like watching the film there was like there was moments when i i kind of was thinking it would maybe have been good to get a little bit more like was there like a lot that you had to was there stuff you had to cut out? Mm. Like, what was the kind of editing process? Like? Yeah, um, well, it was, you know, the shoot was very tight. So, you know, we, 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 
you know, in the edit, we didn't have a lot of extra material to work with, but things do get cut, you know, entire scenes sometimes, or bits of scenes, um, and then for whatever reason, pacing, or it's uh, not, you feel like that information is not needed or expressed in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's also, it's a first-person point of view story, so, which is challenging when you're making something that is science fiction that has some, there is information both about their past and about their condition that needs to be conveyed to the audience, but you're also trying to stay with your main character and have it so that the audience only knows what he knows or what he says or what's said to him directly, Um, which was a challenge in the writing. You know, it's like we couldn't have a scene where the doctor talks to her husband about what's going on and her concerns so that we didn't, you know, we couldn't go into her life um, outside of Jonathan who just made that decision to make it very strictly Mm -hmm. from his point of view. So that could be sort of that feeling that you get when you're watching it of like, there's some missing pieces here and how am I supposed to feel about her? Yeah, What's going on yeah, with her? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I, yeah, mean, I think yeah. that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, there was yeah. kind of moments when you were mm. thinking, but, but, mm. yes, well, but wouldn't they have said mm. that? Or yeah. surely the, that would have happened yeah. kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. if you're only yeah. seeing it yeah. from like uh, Ansel's point of view, yeah. then yes, yeah. you wouldn't have that yeah. other, other yeah. stuff. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that's interesting yeah. to know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you know, so w- w- once you finished, mm. and you sort of like, was there anything that you think, oh, if I had more time, I would have added this, or or is what is now um, going to be on the screen? Is this, you know, y- your complete vision of it? Um, yes, it is. I mean, um, there are so many uh, things that that you know could be shown um, with this particular story, like things that could happen so many interesting things in terms of, you know, what would happen if someone else controlled your body and, you know, you know, where would you wake up? Like, sort of the, the almost horror of that, you know, like, you know, the, of losing control to another person uh, in the extreme. Uh, that person actually can take you somewhere where and put you somewhere in a situation that you did not desire to be. So there were endless possibilities that for that and you know it was some it was none of we didn't film any well there was one that we did film that didn't get to use. That was one I wanted to use, but for the, it, it just in the shooting, there was a scene where Ansel wakes up in the woods naked, um, that John put him there, and uh, as sort of a retribution. And we shot it, but on the day that we shot it, there was um, we we had to go outside of the city, mm-hmm. uh, into the nature, which is you know it's not easy outside yeah. of New York, and uh, it was early fall and the leaves were turning and they were particularly beautiful day, so we hit traffic. Another uh, thing I saw today was what are you going to do when the world's on fire? Now, this is a documentary from director Roberto Minavini. It's produced by Paolo Benzi, uh, Denise Pingli and Roberto Minavini as well. It's a 
Italian US French production. Uh, it runs for 123 minutes, so just over two hours, and it's from the Match Factory. Now, uh, the the breakdown for this is in 2016, unarmed 37 year old African American. Alton Sterling was shot and killed by Baton Rouge police officers. His death sparked public outrage and resulted in mass protests, both in his hometown and across the US, and added yet another name to the Black Lives Matter campaign. Minavini, a US-based Italian director, um who featured at the 2013 London Film Festival with um, Stop the Pounding Heart. He employs his unique and affecting style of documentary to uh, depict the real stories of various members of Baton Rouge's black community in the wake of the shooting. Shot in crisp black and white, the film gives voice to the community with both young and old taking part. It reveals with great empathy an economically disadvantaged, socially disenfranchised group as they fight for recognition, dignity and respect. This is really... It's very poignant. Like we see, uh, 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 yeah, I think the cast of individuals that are in this, it's, um, yeah, it's very uh, unique. It's different. We've got different age groups. Um, I think everyone's kind of got a slightly different background, but everyone has the same fear like the fear of the oppression the fear of not being able to have you know the same opportunities as um you know like white people essentially they 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 is yeah i think this is like the undercurrent kind of that runs through this film um and but you also get these really intimate moments as well, like um two people in the film is like a, a a two brothers, one is older than the other, and they're just uh if you know we see them in a lot of different situations, and the older brother is you know he's doing a lot with his younger brother, but it's all out of love. Like, um, you see him, like, uh, like having a go at him, and then he's just like, listen, I'm not trying to be bad to you, but I want you to realise that, you know, people will come at you in this way, and if they do, and I'm not around, how are you going to react to that? You know, what are you going to do? And then, like, because at first his little brother's, like, upset. And then he's just like, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I see what you're doing. And there's a lot of 
of them and this kind of thing happening throughout but then you have these other moments like they're riding their bikes and they're just kind of having fun they're like there's no real lessons being taught in this bit they're just having fun and so yeah I think you get to see different kind of um sides of their relationship but it all is yeah it, 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 it all kind of makes you think because I mean, that's a lot that you do see in this. It's very reflective. You are left to kind of think, oh, okay, yeah, 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 no, I understand. I see, yeah, I, I, I see what's going on here. I see what they're saying. And that makes it that much more powerful than maybe um, it might normally be. Like, uh, you see um, a woman, uh, and, and she's got a bar, and it's just her her struggles, you know, with the bar, keeping it afloat, and there's this one scene where she just, I mean, lets everything out. Like, um, you know, she, she's trying to help this other woman And this other woman is like, oh, well, this is my issues And she's like, listen, right I have been where you are This happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me And it's like, oh, oh, damn Yeah, you really shared You opened yourself up Like, big time with this That's insane And, um you know, there's a lot with her, you know, interacting with um, people at her work, interacting with her mum. Yeah, you. I think you see, again, a lot of different sides to her. And we're also, um, we also shown, um, like, the way the new Black Panther Party is interacting with um local people in the area like they're you know they're trying to get people's voices heard and um you you see the different things that they're doing like their different interactions with people like meetings that they're having between themselves so we get you know just full access to all of this which just seems like oh damn like yeah we're seeing it all here this is crazy and and i think it's it's very interesting because like i think being a black person in the uk it's a lot different to being a black person in America. Now, you know, you get a lot of people trying to be like, oh, it's the same thing. Oh, you know, it's not. It really isn't the same at all. Like the only, like the similarity is, um, you know, racial oppression. There is that. But it's a, a whole different level over there. But I mean, I think in some regards, you kind of feel 
even though it's crazy, it's slightly better because it's very uh, out in the open. Where over here, you you have people hiding it a lot. You know, they're they're like undercover racist. But um, yeah. So it it just gives you a different insight into everything because when you think you understand a situation you're then shown you know no 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 because it's different like this is how it is here and so it's like oh gosh yeah that's a good point man so it you know it's hard to go think to yourself well you know these people are in the wrong or this isn't a good situation and blah 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 because like you you don't live that life you don't have that quite that same struggle and i think um i think roberto does a, a really good voice uh, sorry a really good job in giving these people a voice and letting us see like how like oppression like influences and impacts their lives so um yeah it's like yeah it's a, a very uh like a, it, it's a very powerful um it's a very powerful documentary and we also get the uh like the Mardi Gras kind of side of things as well um like th- this whole thing is kind of bookended with that and that's very interesting you know um yeah it's kind of interesting to see what's happening hearing some of the songs and things so yeah everything about this is just giving people a new insight and I think that's the most important thing with life Getting insights into how people are affected How people live What kind of moves them along What's influencing their lives And this is a snapshot into that So um, you will be able to see it on Tuesday the 16th at 8.30pm at the Rich Mix Cinema And remember, like, um, you know, I, I think places like the Rich Mix, uh, Prince Charles, like the Curzon There's a possibility that you might be able to find this showing um, in those cinemas at another day uh, So... Also today I had a, the great opportunity to sit down with um, Roberto And talk about his experience making this uh, documentary So I'm going to um, leave you with that, uh, that interaction So uh, enjoy Okay so I'm here with Roberto Right, the um, director of 
what will you do when the world is on fire? Yeah. What you're going to do when the world's on fire, that's yeah. correct, yeah. So, um, yeah, Roberta, thank you for this opportunity to um, have this conversation. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, this is an interesting uh, documentary. Like, how did you come about, you know, um, working on this? I've been, you know, I've been living in America for a couple of decades in the South uh, for more than 11 years. And uh, the South is a great, uh, the South is, especially Texas where it lives, like the best seats in the house to take a look at what's going on in America. You can really, it's like a concentrate of the socioeconomic and racial dynamics that, mm -hmm. that, that are going on in the whole country. So. Uh, living there, I started. Uh, I started with my observations of an exploration of some of the some of the issues, and in particular, since it's been four years that I've been concentrating on the big political divide between you know the right the right wing extremisms and 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 and, and, and their counterpart, mm -hmm. and obviously in America, class and politics, um, the class and political divide overlap with race. So for me, it was a time, especially after having made a film, The Other Side, where I saw, you know, I could witness the hate uh, even against, uh, you know, minorities and uh, so non-white uh, mm -hmm. races. And then it was time for me to dig a little deeper into the big racial divide uh, about, uh, you know, between black and white people. Okay. Uh, so like how long, how many years was this in kind of like the making process? It took, I started working on it uh, uh, informally um, in mid-2015 and then I, four times since January 2016. So it took me about, yeah, overall in all, it was a two-year process before we filmed. A uh, long process of just uh, really hanging out in some of the, the places uh, the, where, where I ended up filming. Mm. At first, it was really about, and I repeat, hanging out, making you know friends and establishing connections and relationships, and then, and the the film and the idea for a film really came after. Okay, so yeah, that was one of the things I, I was wondering about because you had pretty um, just it seems like a carte blanche to film these intimate conversations and gatherings and things like that. So was it, yeah, was it just a matter of the fact that you've been, you've been there for, you know, a, a year talking with people, hanging out. So they had everyone like trusted you to tell this story or, or did you, was there anything else you had to do to be able to, you know, film the new Black Panther party and, you know, go in people's homes and, and film those conversations and their lives. So since I never, I never have a, a project in mind, except for a, a, a overall idea, like I said before, like uh, how to dig deep into the big racial divide, and that, that was about it. But until I meet people, I don't even, I don't even plan for a film. So at first there is this relationship that becomes friendship with, with, with people. And those who I call friends are actually features in the film. Mm -hmm. The relationships that fizzle, then they're not in the film anymore. So it's really about 
making friends and being care for each other and being curious about each other's stories and um, and uh, the Black Panthers is a, is a different case because they haven't had been represented in the media, especially in the white control media for a few decades. Mm. Uh, it was different. They always uh, rejected any uh, any any offer to 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 be represented to be filmed. Uh, in that case, I contacted them through through you know their website, and they uh, they agreed to speak on the phone. And then, as we talked, they agreed to meet in person, and then started you know, a long series of meetings. Started mm. um, some many of which intense, and uh, uh, sometimes I even declined participation because I thought I didn't want to step into the dark side. Yeah. And something that's just going to be difficult. And, uh, and, it's, and that finally we agreed to do this together and, uh, and, uh, but it's intense because we had, you know, we had to, you know, for them it was a leap of faith that Crystal Mohammed, the, the national chair of the Panthers calls it a spiritual decision of trusting us. Mm. There's, yeah, there's that moment, um, I think it's, it's close to the end of the film and, you know, they're outside the building and then it just goes, off and like because I was thinking so where were you in that instance filming all of that you know when the police came and everything like was that uh, a moment that you know after filming you had to have a conversation with them about how it's depicted in the film or is it just like everything you filmed you could show and was there a kind of you know you're a bit like I don't want to get caught up in that like, how, you know, what was that like? Um, well, um, everything, so I film everything that is shown there. Uh, and then uh, we always have a debrief. We talked about what I did and, and we, I, I always share the way I see it, the, what it signifies, the part I filmed, and we talk. And if I see that there's something that could compromise their integrity or, the, or their, you know, uh, the image of, uh, the dignity, and then of course I don't include it. But mm. there's something that is very out, out there. It's spoken, and, and it's just, we we work with uh, with maximum total transparency. Mm. It couldn't be otherwise. That way, you know, especially if I want to keep you know have a relationship with them. As I I have, I have a very tight relationship with all the the characters of the film. And in that moment, that moment just happened. Nobody could foresee it. You see what the camera is placed in the middle of the Panthers right at the front line and that's me operating the camera so I was actually there uh, those are terrifying moments but mm -hmm. I've had many terrifying moments but then I got to realize that my fear I mean those moments are terrifying because as a white guy from Europe a filmmaker I had a choice I could if I wanted to I didn't have to be there yeah and that will that's what makes things scary when you don't have a choice fear vanishes yeah and yeah. And, the, and that's really what made me more scared but as I was experiencing I was aware of that that I was scared because I had a choice I could you know I, I didn't have to be there uh, I didn't have to <laughs> fight to go and try to sue the police uh, for, for the killing of Walter Sterling I don't have to do that I could live comfortably where else. and I, and I think about that but that's that's enough reason for me to be there mm. okay no yeah that's interesting like was because you know there was like a, a distinct kind of um, 
I think perception of oppression from everyone who was you know featured in, in the film like was there um, kind of a thinking of maybe talking with any white officials anyone from the police to get the flip side of it um, not at this time but there was a decision that was uh, I, I made since the beginning because this was my goal was to Again, if I had made that choice, it would have been uh, already my agenda. I want to give both perspectives, so it comes from me. In this case, my decision was to turn on the camera and offer a space for the people who are in the film to express themselves. And it mm -hmm. was their space only. Right. And not, yeah. with no, in, in nothing, uh, with no enmeshment with the white world. Uh, for once, uh, since I'm a media person, I had the power of having a camera and, 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 and showing this film you know, around the world, then I needed to give this moment to them and them only, uh, without direction, letting them express uh, their, you know, and talk about their legacy, their history, and their difficulties and, uh, in the way they wanted to, freely. And it is no coincidence that this is my most dialogue-driven film, just because people really, really wanted to, mm. really wanted to talk. So, a, as soon as I, if I made a decision like that, which was pretty, you know, deliberate, then at that point, it would have been, um, a film, you know, it would have been also a film about myself because I am pushing, a, I'm pushing the audiences to compare two sides. It's mm -hmm. not about two sides, it's really about one side for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, the film starts and finishes on a kind of a similar note with that sky boy, um, you know, the chanting and that kind of what So did you kind of, when you were, were making it, you thought, I'll bookend it in the same way? Or is that just something that kind of just happened by chance. It happened by chance. Among the people, Judy Hill, the main character of, of the film, she's a queen of the Mardi Gras tradition. Uh, so she's part of a tribe. And the Mardi Gras tradition, Mardi Gras Indian tradition is very important because it, it starts, you know, the roots are uh, after slavery, you know, the, the um, um, American Indians really were the ones helping helping out, you know, black Americans reintegrate in society. And they had their own Mardi Gras because black people were not allowed to celebrate Mardi Gras along with white people, so they did it at night. Mm -hmm. So there was all that. Um, so I, uh, Kevin, uh, Chief Kevin is in the film, he's a friend, and I started filming them as well. I had no idea where I wanted to go with that at first. Um, but then I, I realized that that, um, that really could serve, could serve like wrapping this also kind of making this film circular if there's no resolution in it by starting you know the preamble and the prologue and the no what do you call it in the end in the uh, whatever the beginning and the end uh, because um, but again that would that would that those are those are image the, the imagery signifies the claiming a territory uh, that is not theirs anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it extends to the native people of the, of the land who are not recognized anymore. People built America or don't have, you know, and don't 
they've never been rewarded for that. Um, and this kind of uh, uh, ideological battle, which is a fight, but it's not a fight anymore. It used to be. They used to kill each other in the street. They don't anymore, but mm. it's, it's, it's a symbolic ideological fight that never ends, that continues even at night when nobody else sees it. So it's something that the flame of uh, the fight for equal rights and claiming a, a legacy and a territory is always alive. And that's why in the beginning and the end, no matter what the film is in the middle, that flame will never, you know, would never cease to, you know, mm. to, to, to burn, to exist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about having that footage in this film is that I think people would be, would be slightly more aware of it because so Marvel had their series Cloak and Dagger that was set around New Orleans and in it they do feature and talk about Skyboy and the whole making of, of the garments for the Mardi Gras and that kind of thing so it's kind of something that's slightly in people's consciousness a little bit more than maybe it might have been a, if, if you've done this a few years ago, mm. which is kind of interesting. Ah. But um, yeah, I also thought the um, the bike the bike parade with all the lights was a nice visual to have in 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 the, in the film. Like, was that um, like how did you film that those kind of scenes? Were you on a bike yourself or? Yeah, you know, it was a uh, so again. That is part of as the Indians, as the, the Indians uh, that they do that, and it, it's again, it's, uh, it's something at night. In that case, of putting you're lighting up the the neighborhood, and again claiming uh, territory, claiming streets, you know, taking them back from crime and all that. Um, I was um, I was driving my car. I mean, we are just six of us, so you know, the trunk was open. Was sitting at the car. At the back of the car, I was driving, the other people were filming. And then all of a sudden, the neighborhood, that part was not really accessible. They told me to stop the car because it was, it was too dangerous to drive a car mm -hmm. uh, slowly in that part of very dangerous neighborhood. So, so the cameraman, uh, Diego, just ran and chased the bicycle and I started running in a circle with them. And that was all spontaneous. And that's how it ended. So there was no like every everything anything else everything else in the film there's no preparation uh to it but you know when you're fully committed to the point that you could even run in circle and fall with the camera and i've done it many times and you know go get into the ocean with the camera when you fully you know committed and engaged i think then beautiful imagery you know you capture you capture the essence of everything and usually mm -hmm. the essence translates into beautiful imagery yeah i know definitely and yeah, there was definitely some just really captivating imagery within it. You know, there, there's a scene in the in the, um, the in the club when that was closing, and they're singing at the end, and just the emotions of it. Some of the scenes with the two brothers, and just that intimacy is there. Like you know, the old ones teaching the younger one, trying to instill these kind of things in him. So. You know, he's like, look, I'm not trying to hit you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to get you so you know how to defend yourself, so you know what to do. And these little moments, you know, it was really nice to see. And it, you know, kind of really helped bring things to life. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, what are you hoping people kind of walk away with after um, watching this? I guess, uh, I mean, if we think of the title, maybe that's best. West Boya could answer that. The title is What You're Gonna Do When the World's on Fire, and it comes from the gospel tradition. But you know, the answer for me, uh, the answer to the gospel was, we're gonna run to my Lord. But the, 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 the answer that I could give today, maybe people should reflect upon is that, well, it depends who you are, right? It's the world's on fire and I'm a white guy in Europe or in America, I just need to wait for rescue. And I'll probably be rescued. Uh, because, uh, but if I'm, uh, especially in America, if I'm a black person, I might burn because uh, if I don't rescue myself, uh, there's probably no rescue. And there is a, a, there's a little bit of the, of the history of America. So I think this film is really about, not really about me pushing an agenda, it's about people trying to look in, inside, inside themselves and understanding that really um, uh, white people are born with a golden ticket and other people don't have the golden ticket. So even when the world's on fire, uh, you know, we don't risk the same. And, and, that, and that implies an assumption of taking responsibility for something, doing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't, we cannot stop an indignation. We have to move on to taking action, taking responsibility, even for, for, for what's going on in society. So it, I would like audiences to just reflect on that then they, when when things go wrong they don't go wrong the same way for everybody yeah and yeah. i think we should all be not be okay with it mm. well i yeah i i do think that that does kind of come across really you do see how these different situations are affecting people differently so um yeah i think yeah you you know you did a great job with this it was <laughs> Thank a, you. a really interesting watch so um yeah, it's fantastic. Like, have you got another project in mind to, to go on to? Or, or are you just, is this your time to breathe and kind of reflect and contemplate right now? Yeah, uh, my mind can stop thinking about projects, but it, 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 I need to take some time, um, you know, to, to reflect and to take care of myself because these projects are so... Um, so uh, demanding then that usually uh, there's you know health repercussions for me and there's always a you know, process of rehabilitating myself mm. really so right now I'm in that stage I'm still recovering from right, that right. but you know I'm most likely although I'm, I like to think that this could be the end you know maybe my only my last film then you know as my experience say then I might I might be wrong and I might be mm-hmm. another film <laughs> okay <laughs> Well, um, that's that's really great. Thank you very much for um, this opportunity to talk, and yeah, congratulations on the film, and I hope it, you know, achieves everything you want it to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Roberta. Thank you. So I've just seen a the documentary. They'll love me when I'm dead. Now I'm. This was a, a story about Orson Welles. It was directed by Morgan Neville, uh, produced by Colin Matt Matesson, Josh Carp, Philip 
Jan Reisema and Morgan Neville. It's an hour and 38 minutes and it's uh, distributed by Netflix. Now, the um, like the synopsis of this is cinematic iconist Orson Welles' late career was marked by failed projects and in different industry and mounting frustration. This brilliant documentary by Oscar-winning filmmaker Morgan Neville depicts Wells's struggles in attempting to complete what would become his most legendary unfinished film, The Other Side of the Wind. It details the torturous process of its production through footage of the incomplete film, which starred John Huston, Susan Strasberg, Wells's companion, Olga Kudar and Peter Bogdanovich, who is one of the key interviewees in this compelling and poignant account of faulted ambition. Now, I have to admit, like, you know, when you you say Orson Welles, I'd like to think you know, Citizen Citizen Kane is the the thing that comes to mind, but I'd be lying if I said that. Like the the thing that straight away comes to mind is Transformers the movie, and for all you nineties kids, no, not the Michael Bay ones. I'm talking about the animated movie because was oh he was just great. He like. Yeah, it was a perfect casting for a unicorn in that film. Yeah, that that was great. But then you do think about like the other things which he's done. And yes, um, you know, Citizens Kane. It's just he he has a way of telling a story. You know, like. Yeah, the, like the things he's done, you know, Citizen Kane, The Trial, Touch of Evil. Yeah, I mean, like he he's done some classic, um, some classic stuff, you know, um, and I hadn't known about all of the unfinished projects that you know he'd like attempted in his time. Yeah, I like hadn't known about any of that stuff. So it was really interesting to see this documentary that kind of looked at the final 15 years of his of his life, you know, and his attempts to make this film the other side of the wind. Yeah, yeah, it was like when you, um, you know, you find out a lot of different things in this documentary, even though, yeah, it's about the making of this film. But, you know, it's kind of, you learn about how he felt ostracised from Hollywood. And that he spent, you know, two decades, basically, in Europe, because... That was the only way he could get 
funding and, and production on, on projects and films, which is just like, yeah, like, I do not recall hearing, like, any of that kind of stuff, like, back in the day, you know, so, yeah, it was, like, sometimes you watch these documentaries, and it's the first time that you, you find out about things, it's like, um, you know, when he's talking about, like, getting good performances and, and, and telling stories, he calls them divine accidents. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, that he just hoped, like, you know, as he was talking about the, the making, like, just going into production for the other side of the wind, and, um... Yeah, he was hoping that it would be filled, fill, that it would be full of divine accidents. But this documentary, you know, it was, it it basically starts with the death of Orson Welles. So we get some old, you know, footage from the time, like news stories. That you know spoke about yeah he he's passing basically, and then we go into the film itself, like the it was an interesting kind of frame that they used. Um, Alan Cummings was kind of like the narrator for the film, and so. After the, 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 you know, the news stories on Wells' death, you then go to Alan, and he's in black and white in a suit, and, yeah, he's kind of breaking things down for you, kind of setting things up. But it wasn't just a a talking head. Like, they, they had him in different kind of... Shots, because you know. So there was a scene. Sometimes it was a scene of him in his suit talking. Other times it was like the camera would pan out, and you'd have several monitors and TV screens with Cummings on, like talking and explaining what we're going to see and how things were for Wells and, you know, that kind of thing. And that was very interesting, you know. Yeah, it was... It was a different way of doing it. Yeah, I don't think I've seen a film use that technique before, which was really interesting. Uh, So... The documentary was basically a lot of old footage from, like, the set of the film, um, like, interviews and thing, and uh, like, talk shows and stuff that Wells did before the film, and then, like, certain things during, like, there was stuff from a court case that he did. He, you know, he was involved in, and like, so there's all this old kind of footage that we get, which is really interesting, especially when around this there are interviews with a lot of the people 
that were part of the production, like, um, you know, Frank Marshall, Joseph McBride, Beatrice Wells, his daughter, kind of, she came, um, you know, just talking about certain relationships and stuff like that, Steve Eccleston and Peter Bogdanovich. And one of the interesting things about it was that a lot of the people, they started off talking in a way that, you know, they they really missed Wells, you know, that like they had a lot of love for him. And as the film went on, you could see the temperament kind of change. You you could see these people then were thinking about, you know, some of the hurt they felt. You know, some of the things that Wells had done to them. Like, the way they'd been treated, which they... You know, they said that you could see it still kind of pained them. And so you could... Sometimes you see see anger and frustration... And then it kind of just, like, ended with a lot of sadness. There's definitely a lot of sadness. Like, um, when they spoke with Peter a lot, there was definitely sadness in the way he felt their relationship ended. The fact that... Wells, he went on a talk show with Burt Reynolds, and like he he made some jokes at Peter's expense, like there there was a little bit of mocking, and Peter kind of explained that whole situation and how he felt about it, and the fact that he got sent two letters, like one was a sincere apology, the other was a uh, you know, piss off, <laughs> you deserved it, letter, and he was just like, I didn't know, basically didn't know what to do, didn't know how to take it, and so they, you know, they lost contact, and I think it was something that was building, there's, um, you know, he talks about how this young waitress was brought onto the film, and she was given a role, but it, it, it he kind of, noticed that a lot of the lines, a lot of the situations Wells had taken from Peter's interactions with his, you know, then um, girlfriend, Sybil Shepherd, And that hurt him. But he kind of let it go. And so there was a, an accumulation of things that really kind of impacted their relationship. But he talks about how, like, towards the end that they'd started to talk on the phone. But it was never quite the same. And he he just reflects on the last conversation they had before Wells died. And you could really see the ups... The upset, the hurt, you know, all these different feelings going through him. 
and it was just yeah it was it was sad it was you know there was a lot of remorse there was a lot of just odd feelings in the room basically with this which just made it a really fascinating watch you know um when they were kind of talking about the film as well there there was like just so many different like weird incidents that happened around financing and and stuff like that and so they you know he goes into all of it and you're you're finding all this stuff out and you're just like how the hell did this production go on for as long as it did with all these weird things happening you know wells having to go off to do acting roles to kind of get more money to continue the filming john houston going off and doing roles because you know he wasn't getting any money from wells so he needed you know to do these things so he could uh you know basically live but yeah there seemed to be this magnetic pull that Wells had on everyone especially um the director Gary you know who yeah seemed so attached to Wells you know he didn't know what to do he didn't know, yeah, especially when Wells died, he, you know, they're talking about how he broke down and he was lost. And it was just like, yeah, this just fascinating look into this, this moment in time, you know, this moment in time when this genius was trying to trying to do something different you know trying to make this film that he felt no one else was making you know because the film had a film within it so he he's doing these different kind of trying to work out these new techniques to tell this story and the way things were and the way, like, you know, he was cutting scenes and scenes were broken up. Like, he, this first part of the scene was done, you know, years before they finished it. And it was just like... But it's still, you know, tied together, like, seamlessly. And he'd be like, whoa... How the hell were you doing this? This is this is some craziness, you know? But it all all seemed to work at the time. So you're just thinking Man, like what would this fi- how would this film have been? You know, if we had actually gotten to see a finished product, you know, how would it have how would it all played out? Yeah, it, it, it seemed fascinating. And the crazy thing is, you'd see Wells at so many different stages of his life. 
So his weight was fluctuating all over the place. But when you saw him at his biggest, you could you could just kind of feel like the tension he was carrying, all, all of that, that seemed to manifest itself in his weight. It, yeah, it's just... Yeah, as I said, look, it's about an hour and a half, but it is it it doesn't feel like an at you're in there for an hour and a half. It's a fascinating watch, and you know you will have uh, there's a couple more chances to see this. Um, it's showing next Friday, the twelfth of October at twelve forty five. Um, PM at the BFI South Bank, and then it's playing Saturday the thirteenth of October at quarter past five. Um, this time at the View Leicester Square. But um, you know, like with some of the other films, I like keep an eye out because you will find that. Other cinemas may have added them to their schedule. But, um, yeah, they'll love me when I'm dead. It's just this fascinating look. You know, this fly in the wall of the last years of Orson Welles. So if you're a fan of Orson Welles, if you're just kind of fascinated by this... You know, by the, this fly in the wall kind of look at, at the end of his life, I highly recommend checking it out. You know, uh, yeah. Um, if you don't get to see it in the cinema, it will be playing on Netflix. So yeah, give it give it a try. Okay. Okay, so I'm with Morgan Neville, the director of They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. So. Um, <laughs> Morgan, thank you very much for this opportunity. Sure. And um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much around this documentary that I remember there was you had difficulties at Cannes with the screening. Um, like Netflix picked it up. Yeah, at first they weren't going to put it in cinemas, but then they agreed to show it for a little bit. Like, so how has it? Well, let me ask firstly, like, yeah. how did you come about getting on board with this project? So this is the story of Orson Welles' last movie. So he went back to America in 1970 to make a movie about Hollywood and about a film director who comes back to America to finish his last movie and can't finish it, which is what happens. So mm. needless to say, it's very self-reflexive. And so this was kind of a legendary, legendary unfinished movie in film history. Right. And I had heard about it, but it was really when I read a book about four years ago uh, called Orson Welles' Last Movie that I just thought this story is incredible. If I could ever get the footage, it will make an incredible documentary. And at that point, I looked into it, but the producers, uh, Frank Marshall and Peter Bogdanovich and people, have been trying for decades to get this footage out of the vault in Paris, where it had been. Um, so we kind of agreed then that if, if the footage ever gets liberated, that I'll make a documentary and they'll, they'll try and finish the feature film. And so 
several years later, uh, Netflix came in and said, we'll pay for it because somebody had to pay off everybody who claimed they owned part of it. And that's what it took. It took money, as it does to make a lot of movies, to actually get this thing made. Um, and they gave us the freedom to go finish these two films. And we ended up putting them out together. So they're coming out together November 2nd. Oh, so that's, that's interesting because I didn't realize that the actual film itself has been finished as it is. well. So because there was a scene, um, I think it was towards the end of the, of the film, where there's the footage of him in the court hearing. So I think it was the, oh, was it like the Saudi Arabian money or something? It was it, the um, Iranian money. Iranian money, yeah, that's yeah. it. And so was that a part of this whole thing with trying to get the rights and everything like that? Yeah, I mean, there were a bunch of different parties, uh, including the, um, the brother-in-law of the Shah of Iran, mm. who was the investor in the film. And uh, Orson's family, and Orson's mistress, and everybody who had a share of the film. So, um, so everybody had to be satisfied for the film right. to happen. So it took years of wrangling. So they have finished a cut of the film, and the documentary and the film are going to come out the same day on Netflix. Uh, but they're also going to be here in theaters. I know mm. uh, in London we're opening at the ICA uh, oh, nice. on November second too. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, so um. Have you seen the, the I have. and how, how was I mean, it? it's fascinating, but it's, it's complicated. I mean, I will say people have asked about this, and I think if you watch the documentary first, it will make the watching of the feature film so much better mm -hmm. because you'll understand so much more about what's happening. Yeah, because the yeah. feature film is really complex with so many characters, and, you know, it's kind of avant-garde. So, so I think... I think the documentary does a lot to helping explain what Orson was going through and what the movie is really, really about. Mm, mm. And um, it was, you know, because watching the documentary, there's, it seems that there's stuff from the beginning, like towards the end and the end at the beginning, like you mm. mixed the footage up a bit. So how was it in the editing? Like how did you kind of think, this is how I'm going to tell this story. Yeah. I mean, the good thing for us was we weren't trying to tell in any particular order. I mean, the footage, he shot, shot more than 100 hours over more than six years. So there was a lot of footage. And as it was transferred, it came in in random bits and batches. So... And there was no proper script, you know, I mean, it was, it was kind of a mess, mm. frankly. And so just to piece together what was what took a lot of work. And I know on the feature side, they had a really hard job to see if they even had enough footage to make the film. Um, but from the documentary point of view, everything was fair game. So he shot whole scenes and he shot weeks with actors who were recast. So that footage was never going to see the light of day yeah, ever again, yeah. except in this documentary. So it was a chance to kind of go down the alleys of Orson's process and explore these different things he was doing. Yeah, that was, I think that was an interesting thing about, you know, watching your film. And it's like, I think there was, a, a, at the very beginning, they were talking about um, one guy that was, yeah, had shot loads. And then um, I think some sort of scheduling thing and he couldn't do the rest. Yeah. And then... Um, yeah, one of his lead actors. Yeah, yeah banished. Like yeah, yeah. And, and it was just like, oh, well, just don't show him. And it was just like, yeah, that just seems crazy. And, and then I remember there was a scene in the car with mm -hmm. the film within the film. Yes. And um, Oya Kodar. Yeah. yeah. And and the and the love scene in the car, and he's saying that 
that they started it and then finished it three years later. Yes. And it just, it just makes no sense when you're trying to think about it. I know. Like that. But I, Orson loved doing that. You know, we tell stories that he he gotten used to shooting in Europe where he would shoot a conversation between two actors, you know, on two continents and two different years, you know. So he had no problem piecing things together. And in his mind, it all fit together, but nobody else knew how it mm. fit together. So it was yeah, a lot of detective yeah. work to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. So there wasn't any notebook for the last question? Oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, um, okay. So um, for you, what was the... So let's say, what was the yeah. hardest part of doing this? And what did you hope to um, kind of accomplish? What, did, what was your... Well, I mean, the thing is, a lot of people under 30 don't know who Orson Welles is, and that's incredible to even think about. If you love movies, you know who Orson Welles live, uh, is, but he's just not thought of. Like, when we were young, or anybody growing up, it felt like Orson was this towering figure in cinema, and, and I think just reintroducing him and re-understanding him is, uh, is important, because I think a lot of people don't realize at the end of his life, Orson wasn't retired. He wasn't just doing acting roles. He was working on his own movies every day. Nobody ever saw them, so nobody ever understood that Orson had not retired and mm. was actually still kind of a vibrant director. And this film, I think, goes a long way to kind of understanding that Orson, at the end of his life, was even more of an independent guerrilla filmmaker than he was at the beginning of his life. That, yeah, that yeah. He, he was somebody who's actually kind of the godfather of independent cinema. And I think we should all, you know, pay due respect to him. Well, I, I think your um, your documentary will definitely go a long way yeah. to um, letting people understand who he is and the process which he used when making films and how he was kind of living that in you know those last seven years of yeah. his life. Yeah. So I thank you for putting this out. Of there. course, it's very fascinating. Well, and thanks so much. Yeah, and thank you again for this opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, it, it's been a pleasure. Thank Absolutely, you. great to meet you. Okay. okay. Thank you. Well, that's another episode. And um, listen, as I've, look, I, I've said it before, um, there's a lot of running around. There's a lot of having to do things on the fly. And especially when it comes to interviews. Because, um, you know, it it's hard to get people on their own and so the best way to do it is to have a lot of directors and producers and writers in a room and then you know everyone kind of moves around and you interview the people you want to do like it so yeah that environment is perfect for you know taking notes for a written interview it can be a little bit noisy for a recorded interview, but I I think everyone sounds okay. I think you can hear them fine, um, but there is like background a little bit of background noise and stuff like that. But um, you know, we'll we'll try and find ways to improve this as we go on. But I hope it doesn't detract. Now um, tomorrow. There should be reviews of Dragged Across Concrete, They Shall Not Grow Old, and um, United Skates. But, uh, you know, anything can happen, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what 
we'll see how it all goes. But, um, you know, I hope uh, you found these interesting today and useful. Um, enjoy, uh, enjoy Tuesday and we'll, we'll hit you in the evening. All right. Thank you. Bye.